What you're about to hear is a talkback for episode 6 of Streams and Variations. If you haven't heard episode 6 yet, please check that out first, as we will be discussing the stories and songs from that episode. You can find it on our website, streamsandvariations.com, or on your preferred podcast platform. Let's get to it. Welcome to Streams and Variations, a talk back for episode six. My name is Jamie Johnson. I'll be your host. Um, I am joined today by our co-producer, Sean Erker. Hello. Uh, uh, writer, Adam Bailey. Hello. And uh, singer-songwriter, Eris, a.k.a. Kirsten Johnson. Hi. And uh, she is the lovely writer of our first song this afternoon. I'm going to ask Sean if he wants to say anything about what uh, started this particular project today. Yeah, just to start off with, because every episode we we start uh, our first artist with a prompt. uh, And so if that artist is a songwriter, it's a written prompt. Uh, And Jamie wrote this monologue that was sent to Kirsten. It's called The Day. And I just want to read a few lines from this uh, to give the listeners some context about what Kirsten received. So it starts out, it says, I want you to understand that I haven't called you here to gloat. I haven't called you here to lift my spirits up. I haven't called you here to make you feel bad, but I had to call you. I just had to share because this is worth celebrating. And then it goes on to say, I got through another day. I got through another day, a day in which I didn't break down in pain, a day I didn't cry, a day in which I didn't crawl into a corner and hang my head, letting the weight of all these things push me into the earth beneath my butt. That's right. I had a day when my mind didn't wander into my own exile. Then it goes on a bit further to say, clap with me, help me celebrate a day, you goof. Help me celebrate a simple, straightforward day when nothing of any importance happened. It's the kind of celebration that I need and I want to be able to celebrate with you. And so that was sent to Kirsten. And uh, Kirsten, why don't you tell us about how that turned into your song? It's nice to see you. time you bought me coffee at this place Thank God when I'd hope So it's nice to see you as a song that describes the narrator or me sitting down with somebody that I haven't seen for a while and them wanting to like tell me about where they're at in life. And I think that from my perspective, it's somebody that I have romantic history with. And this piece of writing prompted me to just think about what that would feel like. Like this person wants to celebrate that they're happy that they got through a day and that's a really beautiful thing. But at the beginning of it, when it starts, it just made me think like maybe they're, they haven't spoken to the person that they're trying to reach for a while. And as I read that, I thought, how would I feel if somebody who I maybe went through something with called me and wanted me to celebrate with them and didn't ask my permission? So that's how I kind of came up with the idea of it's nice to see you. Cause I looked back on my life and I was like, 
there are a lot of people that I've shared, you know, very intimate moments with or love with that if they called me and wanted to celebrate their happiness, I might say, celebrate it with the people that you're with now. Why do you need me to confirm that this is okay for you? Um, and that's why the song goes like, does this girl know that you're here with me? Does she know that this is, that I'm the person that you want to talk to about the great, Mm -hmm. you know, happenings of your life now, because it shouldn't be me. So why are you coming back here? Um, and that's kind of how the song was born. Yeah, I think that's the, the the lovely dichotomy actually of the of the song is you've, you you're giving us a lovely character perspective about seeing somebody but that you haven't seen in a long time, but the character has enough strength to know that there is an ulterior motive in that other person. That other person is searching for something that only they can give them. Yeah. So I, I think it's it's a it's a lovely play on having that 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 concept of of need on the other person when they're trying to say that they're happy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because I think that if they were really happy, they wouldn't be looking to their past. Exactly. I mean, they're they're searching for something that they're not getting from the person that they're with now. I, I, yeah. I think- I think there's an absolute beauty in that. There was a real strength in that character, the 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 character that you're writing from the the perspective of the song, that character, because there is an admission of weakness on her part as well. For sure. I'm I'm only using her because you're the singer. I'm sorry. I probably should. Um, but there is an admission on her part of her own weakness in terms of being there at that point in time. But she has the strength enough to actually recognize what's going on yeah she has the strength to hold on to an a perspective about what's going on between the two of them that is that is great and, and then and that line was when we were hostage lovers faking friends in love mm-hmm. about her realization about what they were i thought was absolutely brilliant little little line to 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 give us to show up show what where they were at that point in time or before i should say well, I think I think that that's a very relatable thing to be like hostage lovers faking friends. Because when you are that in deep with somebody who I and I think that that's what these characters were. Like when when this song came to me, it was like these two people who have that string between their hearts that's never going to be cut. There's always going to be a connection. They're always going to care about where each other are. But when they were in love, it was like a cage. Um, and now that they're free, like this, this person that she's going down to sit down and meet with in a bit of a moment of weakness, knowing that she shouldn't is, is sitting in front of her and trying to draw her back in without, without her permission. So it's strength, but I think it's also protection. I think it's like, we can't go back to that hostage situation. I can't do it with you. You're supposed to be in love with somebody else. Um, so it's beautiful, but I think it's also really painful. And it's strong, but I think it's also very scared. Um, but I like that you got that from it. Oh, yeah, and I, I agree with you. There, there's absolutely a, a, a whole line of pain that runs throughout this entire show um, that was captured right from you, that came right from you for the for everybody else. But there is an absolute pain that just slides beneath the surface all the way through. It's, it's, it's painful, but brilliant. Well, to be fair, Jamie... To be fair, Jamie, in your prompt, 
you literally talk about you're like i'm so full of pain but not today today is the first day without pain so (laughs) i would say it came from you but sure go ahead blame kirsten if you want i'm used to it going from the prompt which i'm kind of surprised because i didn't know what the prompt was and i feel very much like what i wrote very much reflects on what the initial prompt was that wasn't even in the episode and i'm just like wait a second because my piece was very much about a relationship that doesn't exist um but on paper somehow it does and so wanting to bring that into fruition and and then listening to Kristen talking about the song it was like very much I've, I've been in that situation where I've had someone show up on my doorstep and and proclaim a relationship with me that just was not authentic to where I was in my life so I I should have muted my phone <laughs> It's okay. It's kind of like you should have muted your phone and not picked up their call. You know, like they should. It all ties back. Yeah, yeah. I should have muted my phone and not picked up their call. Yeah. So it just it was very, very like hearing hearing the prompt poem. I'm just like that's so bizarre because what what I got to work with was not that prompt at all. It was a very, very different thing to work with. So the fact that that somehow my life experience, how I took that prompt, goes back to this beginning thing into your song which I relate to very, very much, uh, Kirsten. It's, it's, yeah, that's, it's a weird part, part of this project. It, it really is. Yeah, and it happens quite a lot, actually. We, we find that quite a lot, John. The, I was just going to say, the thing that's, that's interesting about this one is uh, the particular format of sitting down, basically, for a coffee with someone that you haven't seen for a while uh, keeps showing up. And it's, it was a lot of the basis of Kirsten's piece. And then Samantha takes that and then it kind of, I don't really use it, but then it comes back, comes back with uh, um, Scott's piece. Scott's piece brings it back immediately. And then Tim doesn't really use it. But then Adam comes back again (laughs) with his piece. It was like, no matter whoever kept trying to throw it out, it just keeps coming back. (laughs) You mentioned like this, this through line of pain that goes through this episode. But what's interesting is all of these pieces are, or most of these pieces are like one character coming to another character with a big sack full of bullshit. (laughs) And they're just like throwing it on the table. Totally. And they're just like, can you deal with this? And it's from different perspectives. So you get this first piece from Kirsten where the, the, the singer, the, the, the protagonist of this piece is going, why the hell are you doing this? Like, this is not cool. Don't do this. And then in the next piece, you see it from the person who's just like, oh, deal with all of this. This is projecting. It's it's weird how each of us kind of shows. I'm like, I'm going to be the bullshit thrower or I'm going to be the bullshit receiver. I don't know. We'll see. Or I I think actually think in the the, uh, essence of Timothy's piece, it's, Somebody sitting outside of it watching yeah. the bullshit being thrown. This is the one that kind of sits outside of that, but it's interesting because it still came all the way back full circle with Adam. Yeah. Well, because his, his, his was the nice version of, of the story. Like his has like the, the bit more familiar hallmark moment uh, of, of what we were going through, all of us with, with the pieces that we had. Um, and then, yeah, of course, I, I was like, no, pain. But, but I wouldn't call it bullshit because mental health really felt like a really strong theme. Yeah. This and this episode. I'm, I'm being uh, uh, facetious with it, but it, that's kind of the uh, the tone, right? I mean, there, there's bullshit there too, but there's, it just yeah. feels like there's also a lot of mental health going on. But from the receiver who might be trying, sorry, who might be trying to like push it away, it totally does feel like bullshit. 
it's like if this is it I feel like the the receiving um art pieces in in this podcast were like why like why me like why now and it really does feel like it it as as much as like mental health and emotions and past and all of these things are very relevant it's it's like why are you choosing me yeah absolutely and i also think because we have to remember that this was written during the first run of the pandemic and by that point in time a lot of people have been stuck inside for a long time like we're, we've been stuck inside a lot more but i think this was was the first point at which people were starting to realize their 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 kind of aloneness yeah and their need to be able to share stories with somebody else and the only way to share them was on a one to one essentially a one to one basis and i think that that became a part of the fabric of all of these I mean, even in your piece, Sean, you, you say that you didn't write it from that perspective, but it does come across as if that character who's singing about JFK Jr. is talking specifically to one person because he's recruiting oh, we'll that get person. To it. Oh, yeah, we'll get yeah, there. We'll but get he's recruiting <laughs> that person. Before we actually move on, which I, I think we should do momentarily, I do have a question to ask, uh, one more question to ask of uh, Kirsten. I know there was an incredible awareness uh, that your your character, your main character, your protagonist was aware of her own weaknesses. But at the end, I do want to ask you that lovely fade away, that lovely little sort of tinkle out. Was that that character's moment of weakness? When she says we're not who we were? Yeah, because there's sort of this 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 kind of um, still a few key rings just after the end of that do you know what i, I mean that sort of fade it, away i think it is meant to be a bit of a cliffhanger because i think she still romanticizes whatever they had and i think that there is that layer of she could fall back into it and she's trying so hard not to so when she says it's nice to see you it's been a while since we sat down to talk but we're not who we were it's her saying that and also her trying to convince herself of it that's that's what I thought because I'm the, it was that lovely little just the few piano notes going well I'm not really sure where I'm going with this okay 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 you know yeah it's like I'll stand up and leave but holy shit I'm gonna think about this for two <laughs> <Yeah>. weeks <laughs> so you're still gonna have me for two weeks even if you're not present yes. physically here you're gonna rent some space in my in my head yeah thank you so much. <laughs> And then you're going to sit down for coffee with somebody else to tell them about this crazy meeting you had. And they're going to be like, again, with the bullshit from this woman. Exactly. Kristen, have you gotten, have you attempted getting back together with an ex? Oh, of course. Because, because like just that, it, it strikes me. I've had that experience once too. And I tried to rush things a little bit on that, like getting back together track. And the person literally said almost the exact same thing that you say in the song. Like, we're not the same person that we used to be. It was like, Going on a date with Gertrude Stein. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's really common, though. Like, I think that I I've been having this conversation a lot with a lot of my friends. And, like, um, when we get into new relationships with people, I think sometimes we fall in love with their potential. And then we we go through the relationship that ends up not working out, hoping and hoping that it's going to get to that thing that we fantasize and romanticize. And then when it ends... And we end up going back and having these meetings and trying to get back together. You really have to check in and say, was it ever really that thing? Or when I meet with this person, am I still seeing what it could be? And it never really was. And that's why I'm not getting the closure that I needed. And that's what she's saying here. Like, I've been through that so many times where I'm like, this 
never was and it never will be, but I can see the whole thing playing out the way that my heart wants it to. And so I hang on to it or we hang on, you know, somebody hangs on to it and like, it's hard to let go of. Um, we're going to move on now to uh, a piece called Half Fish, Half Person by Sam Chalk. This was read by Kate MacArthur. I know. I'm your crazy fucking conspiracy sister. I get it. But you're hearing me out right now, and I honestly appreciate it. Here's why they're a problem. They're all about growth and learning new things and being open to new possibilities. They don't limit their understanding of themselves. It's their natural state of being. They don't have to go to therapy or learn hard lessons or be disciplined. They just are already. So you can see how it's only a matter of time until they take over, right? They're not like us. We like what we know. Well, I'm I was I'm going to break into this one uh, uh talking to Adam first because Adam and I have uh have worked with Sam before and uh, I just wanted to hear his take on it first before we get into this. She she's a delight and I'm not surprised that she went aquatic because she is a proud Newfoundlander and so that of course was going to pop up inside this this monologue somehow the life aquatic and uh and I just I loved I loved more like mashing together ugly bottom of the sea creatures with the little glows on them. And then like this, we're all going to get taken over by Ariel from the little mermaid. Like, like she wants to improve herself and, and we don't. And therefore mermaids are going to take over humanity. Like I just, I just absolutely adored um, hearing this piece. It was, it was quite quirky and wonderful and she is quite quirky and wonderful. So it was a good, it was a good listen. What did you think? Um, myself, I, I found that actually the lucidity of the character quite amazing. She's so clear, even though in your mind you're going, she's a little out there. But the clarity with which she brought around the entire argument is absolutely wow. amazing. You're an easy target, man. You're, you're, you're going to get recruited into a crazy cult. <laughs> I, I am an easy target, and I believe everything that people tell me. I know that. I am the softest person in the world. But. That's because I think the mermaids is is is, is actually herself. Uh, what I wrote down is: Is the mermaid her? Are the mermaids her as her depressed self? And what she's trying to do is recruit her sister, who's sitting on the other side of the table, to help her not become the mermaid again, because she's fighting against the mermaid. She's fighting against her depressed self. That was what was going through my mind throughout this entire thing. Like, she's putting it as a mermaid. She's putting it as something that other people have researched. But in my mind, she's going, no, that mermaid is actually the person she's trying not to be anymore. I mean, it makes sense because delusions and disassociations are, are very, like, they're connected. Um, so I'm like, I'm just wondering because yeah yeah there's the mental health aspect there she's definitely going through some sort of crisis and uh it is asking her sister for help um i don't know if it's that it's that or if it's all the other people like she's turning all the other people who because when you're depressed everyone else is better than you so is is it is it that she's the mermaid or she is everyone else a mermaid and she's going to get taken over by all of them and that's why there's a monstrous aspect to what the mermaids are 
because they're gonna you you can't compete with them you know like and that's very much what it feels like when you're depressed you're like oh i'm gonna lie in bed because there's no point in getting up and doing anything today yeah it's 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 just i'm I'm just speaking as myself, of course, but I just kept having that vision of the mermaid being her and coming back and fighting with the person that she's trying to be and her saying, this person here that I am right now wants you, sister of mine, sitting across the table from me that I've just given a latte and a cookie to, to help me combat that thing that is ravaging the rest of the world that is going to ravage me. I think you could be really right about that. I'm actually really impressed with how much of the story you were able to pick up because with her performance, I just got so wrapped up in the like hysteria of it. And I was like, my mind was wandering. I was feeling anxious. Like I wasn't even able to like grasp as much as what had happened. I was just like, this chick's crazy. <laughs> but I think that there there may have totally been like a depth to this or a projection in this that that I missed completely. Yeah, and then again, I could just be crazy too. So I'm just going along with what's going on. So uh, you well, never you never really know. I happen to know the answer, the correct <laughs> answer. Oh, the correct answer because yes. I have comments here from Samantha. Um, and uh, although. It's true. You are crazy, Jamie. You are not that crazy on this one. Uh, you're actually pretty close. So here, here's what Sam said. She says, at first, I was responding to the relationship, and it's nice to see you. It didn't seem good. These two people are justifying getting pulled back into unhealthy dynamics. And in the song, she says, we're not who we were, but they kind of are. I took it as them regressing. And so I started thinking about what stifles personal growth, clinging to the old and comfortable for familiarity's sake, rather than growing and changing. And that's the themes that I, I use for the most part. I started riffing on the concept of resurfacing demons and the image of that it came up with the real high pressure deep sea mermaids. I personally would be okay if those mermaids came up and took over, if they're wise and committed to growth and whatnot, but why does this woman feel like she's going to dedicate her life to eradicating them? Maybe we should just let them take over? When are we suppressing our growth to favor our familiar addictions and ways of thinking? That's what I was thinking about. So she says uh, that, yeah, she, she was adapting the themes and kind of character personalities into a metaphor and then making that metaphor literal into the narrative that she was putting together um, with her story. So uh, she, she goes on to say a little bit more where she says that she would then had, she struggled to come up with a premise to contain the weirdness of what she was trying to talk about. And <laughs> she, she says the best discarded one was about a kidnapper forcing a professional gamer to witness an underwater apocalypse through VR goggles. And for the life of me, I mean, I'm not going to complain about what she created, but I really you wish I could have yeah. seen that. <laughs> I, I, but uh, she says that she wanted to make sure that she uh, she's already working on a, a, a show about social media and she didn't want to just rewrite that. But what she ended up coming into was uh, landing on the YouTube conspiracy and setting it at a coffee shop just like the song. Yeah, again, that's another one of the recurring themes of this entire thing is this concept of internet and internet use and uh, the 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 believing in things that are seen in front of them. Um, you know, the conspiracy theories, the um, 
crazy research, if you want to call it that, which just jumps up all the way through this entire thing, especially in your piece. But the, we'll, we'll get back to that in a second, Sean. Um, but, I mean, it's interesting that it's the Internet because you get the dichotomy between the, the, the distance and then meeting people for the first time, maybe in a while. And you come and you haven't seen someone in such a long time, maybe a year, maybe it's been a pandemic. And you say, well, yeah. since the last time I saw you, you will not believe the stuff that I found out on the Internet. <laughs> I've had nothing but time on my hands and <laughs> access to Reddit. And boy, oh boy, <laughs> did that fall down a rabbit hole. And again, I think that's just because of the, the nature of who we were at that point in time and of what we were doing at that point in time. I mean, everybody was stuck inside. Everybody there. I mean, there's so much loss in terms of our inability to communicate with each other because we're communicating most of the time still through screens. We don't actually physically see each other. And if you think about it, that 80 to 90 percent of our actual communication is visual and tactile and physical that it's very hard to consistently keep relationships alive just by talking through a screen. I was just going to say, I think the amount of limited bandwidth that we have now is really showcased in the pieces because I think that the people who are like, um, you know, projecting or talking more are so excited about what they have to say or are so affected by what they're witnessing. And then the people who are receiving are like, I have not been receiving this for a while. Like, I am not ready for this. Um, and I think that that totally plays into what we've been experiencing this past year. Like, our relationships and the dynamics that we can allow ourselves to be a part of are so different and tainted by this isolation that we've experienced. Well, even even in your personal life, like at home, um, you, you can't have a tragedy right now because everyone's going through it. Like, like you can't. I, I remembered um, one of my um, contract providers was talking and I was like, what's going on? She just, she, she briefly mentioned a death that happened and we talked about it for a bit. It's just like, yeah, like, how do you, how does anyone, like, how do, no one can take on the burden of your grief right now. And, and, and where does that leave all of us? Cause you kind of have to be chipper for the people that you're living with, for the people that you're involved online. It's more so than ever because we all know that we're near that edge. And so you're you're only allowed to have one blue day in a week. The rest of the time you have to fake it. And and so no and 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 any news that's gonna that's gonna crack that facade on a day when you don't have time to deal with that because you've got to teach something online or you've got some contracts due, um, you you can't deal with that. And it's more so than than before. And it's shocking because we have all of this time at home by ourselves. And you think we'd have more time to process, but we we don't. Well, we can't allow ourselves the time to process either because we are so isolated with nowhere to output our emotions to. If if you give yourself the time to process, you're going to get into a black hole very quickly. And and for a lot of people, there's nobody there to pull them out because everybody's consumed in their own. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. Just despite the fact that, that you know, a lot of us have partners and things that, are, that exist in that same space. We're all dealing with the same thing. So if one goes into that hole, the next one's going to go into that hole, and the next one's going to go in that hole, and you'll have three holes, black holes, wandering around in the house, and nobody knows what to do for each other. Which brings us to Sean. Speaking of black holes and no one knowing what to do. <laughs> um, let's move on. To, uh, this is a lovely piece written by our friend Mr. Sean Urker called JFK Jr. Can't you see? So clear to me, JFK Jr. still alive. 
plane crash was fate. So he could. Yeah, so um, I guess maybe I'll start. Uh, sure, if you like. Oh, maybe not. No, sorry. Usually we start with the other people. I'm not used to I that. I think you should start. Okay, I'll, okay. Okay, all right, okay. So when I got this piece, uh, I got uh, Samantha's monologue. And it was obviously a lot about uh, this mermaid conspiracy theory. And I, the reason, the thing that jumped into my mind is about Atlantis. Conspiracy theories are always a, a funny thing and a weird thing. And I wrote my song about sort of QAnon stuff, which to me, as someone who has uh, degrees in fields related to politics and economics and stuff, like you you listen to uh, these theories and what people talk about and you just go how is it possible that you can believe this it's so it's not even just that it's not true it can't be true like it's just so far removed from reality how is it possible that you can believe this and then one day probably a year ago probably while i was stuck inside for a pandemic I uh, was watching stuff on YouTube and for whatever reason, the horrible algorithm that sends people down really bad rabbit holes gave me some video about like uh, the history of like Atlantis or something. And it's some guy and it's reasonably well produced. So he didn't seem totally crazy. <laughs> and he's talking about Atlantis and he has this thing where he's like, oh, this is Atlantis. It's this area of northwestern Africa. And here's all the evidence. And there's all of this like archaeological research. And, you know, here's all the texts from Plato and Greek historians. And he's laying all this out and I'm watching it. And I'm just like, yeah, yeah. I buy it. That's Atlantis. <laughs> and it's because I have no basis to compare it against, because I have no education in, you know, uh, uh, ancient history or not any good education anyway. And I don't have, I don't know a lot about African geography. And so it's easy to kind of go along with those things. And so I found it so funny that this conspiracy theory, uh, that Samantha was writing about was about these mermaids. And I know it's supposed to be ridiculous because it's like, who would believe that? And it's like, well, I was pretty convinced about Atlantis for five minutes before I thought about it. Uh, so <laughs> I, I really ran with the uh, the YouTube conspiracy theory thing and uh, ended up writing more about QAnon to give it more of a hu humorous spin. But um, that was my thoughts about Samantha's piece. I just love that you were able to tie in like the, you know, what was happening in politics at the time because it was, it's such a massive part of history. Um, and the divide that's going on right now between people's, you know, political beliefs is going to be talked about in textbooks. And I just think that it's really cool that you were able to tie that perspective um, in. Like, I don't know. I think that that's really shocking. I don't think I would be able to write something like that. And so I would. I just think that that's so cool. <laughs> well, I liked that you tied in with JFK Jr. and JFK because I I remember when when conspiracy theories were fun, where they were like a diversion. No, they were like not even that long ago, like 2012. I I remember when I did um the assassination of Rob Ford. Our posters had like Illuminati symbols all over the poster, <laughs> and like we we peppered in some of that stuff. Yeah, throughout well. the play because people were just doing that at the time. It was fun. Like every Super Bowl halftime show had an Illuminati conspiracy video to analyze the symbols in it that, that came out like the day after. And it was just a part of the culture and, and people deliberately 
you know, put things in their videos and in their artwork to kind of like, ooh, is are they actually the Illuminati? And that was kind of fun and stupid and silly. And like a lot of people, there was a whole bunch of September 11th stuff that like was serious for a moment. And then we all made fun of it. And everyone had a JFK theory and everyone had a, and like, it was just part of the culture that was light. That was not necessarily like the, the, the worst thing that was happening in the culture. And then suddenly it just became the absolute worst thing that was happening in the culture. I think we all give ourselves this amnesia where we, we were never part of it. We never took part of it. We never had any enjoyment out of conspiracy theories, just these crazy people. So it was nice that Sean's song had, instead of thinking of those people as alien, they're just like us. They just, they just went that one step further than everyone else did where we all were able to turn off the video and be like, yeah, maybe, maybe Beyonce and Eminem are part of the Illuminati, but probably not. <laughs> and, 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 and now it's, now it's not. Now it's like life and death. People are going to pizza parlors and, and, you know, shooting at the place up looking for, for basements filled with children that aren't there. You're like, oh, this is, this is where we are or, or storming the Capitol. Yeah. It's, it's really quite concerning on many times. And, and actually, um, <clears throat> One thing that I took from from all of this up to this point is I wrote down this note that that um, all of these monologues and songs up to this up to this point in the in the stream are actually like little PowerPoint presentations. It's like people laying out facts and facts and facts, trying to bolster up their internal emotional system to stay in control of themselves. You know, I love the fact that in your song, um, your your character actually turns around and says, "I I and I personally think that he says this to himself as well as the person he's talking to." He says, "I'm just asking questions because I think for myself." It's it is a tongue in cheek line because I find this stuff darkly, darkly fascinating, and it's it's disturbing in so many ways, and and that's one of the lines you hear from people is it's just like oh i'm just you know uh i'm just asking questions what you can't ask questions and uh, you know you just do your own research if you do your own research you come to this conclusion and it's like you're doing insane research man like you know that's not research you have misunderstood the word research um so there's a kind of it's 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 a tongue-in-cheek kind of wry irony when i have the character say something like that i think but well it's a rhetorical device and it's done to say that that you're you well you're not thinking for your, they're not saying i'm thinking for myself they're not disclaiming that there's not a cue in the background or where we go one we go all they're saying you don't think for yourself and you don't even know it and it's that sense of specialness that they, they get because like at least i know what i believe in and why i believe it you you haven't even unpacked you haven't even begun to unpack what you believe and the idea of saying, yeah, it's true, I think for myself. I'm not following somebody else's instructions. I'm not listening to somebody else. But they are. They have to be to get there in the first place. Yeah, they're they're following the instructions of Noob Bop 5000 on YouTube, you know? <laughs> and, uh, but that's not, that's not, you know, it's not as bad as watching CNN, obviously. <laughs> um, I mean, part of the culture of all of this is the concept of red pilling, despite, you know, the irony of the term. It's this concept of saying, well, you know, the, the shroud is off of my eyes. You're all being lied to. And I uh, am smart enough 
to not believe that anymore. And I'm smart enough to question all of these things that you've told me, like the earth is round, doesn't look round to me. You know, I throw the ball, it goes straight. I don't know how, you know, I don't know what you do. Uh, but a comment, a comment like that and, also allows people to remove themselves from the argument, right? It doesn't, it doesn't, um, it allows you to not justify your position on something that might be, you know, tough to talk about with another person. Um, and so I think that that comes up so much and not just in politics right now, that comes up with like a lot of personal matters. And I think again, relating this back to like the limited bandwidth that people have and the divide that we're experiencing just in civilization right now, that's so common. Like I think for myself, my opinion is my opinion is my opinion and your opinion is yours and let's leave it there. Um, which is dangerous in a lot of ways. Yeah, and and this carries straight on into this uh, wonderful piece called uh, Shut Up, written by Scott Garland. Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! No more talking from you. Don't even breathe too loud. If I hear one more cynical fucking note about red pills or deep webs or Buffy the Vampire Slayer's agenda to sterilize the male population, I swear they will never find your body. I'm going to talk now. You are going to listen. Now. Again, this world of this particular character is about pain. And this whole stream has been about pain, about internal pain. But in, in this case, we're getting it full force. We've talked about this. I talked about this with Sean and there, there, <clears throat> the concepts of this pace are, this piece, sorry, forgive my uh, blurring of words here, but it's all about this full force frontal blah that is going as this person is trying to release some of their internal pain. It's the release of this pain that this person means needs. It's the thing that she has to get rid of. It's the thing that, that she has to pass off into that person that is causing as much of it as everything else that's going on in her life. And I think it's where it comes clearest is in that opening line. The line is, shut up, shut up, shut up. I think it's a pretty good response to some of this bullshit, you know, especially the bullshit from from my song. Uh, and I think, you know, we get to see in, in these pieces some different ways of handling um, emotional uh, confrontations between people, you know. Uh, good mental health habits require... Uh, good ways of dealing with confrontation, good ways of dealing with frustration, being able to empathize with people sometimes and other times being able to shut people down and being able to draw boundaries. I think that that's really true, though. And I think that it, it, drawing a hard boundary when somebody is, you know, projecting their hysteria on you and especially as a response to, you know, your song about conspiracy and everything, like when somebody's going through their own stuff and you don't ask them permission to be like, Hey, can I talk to you about this? Like a healthy, but frowned upon response is like, I can't take this. Absolutely not. Stop. I've got my own bleep to deal with. You know what I mean? Um, 
but again, it's like, it's a, it's a, it's a frowned upon boundary, especially right now when people feel so disconnected, but it's super necessary. It makes for a story. So certainly we have something to listen to. It does. Wouldn't have been much of a monologue if they just, in a very healthy way, established boundaries and went their separate ways. It's an understandable progression, yeah. though, because when, again, if that boundary at the beginning isn't addressed, like if you haven't asked somebody, do you have the bandwidth for this? It's like, absolutely not. And now here's all of my shit because, you know, fuck you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, honestly, except that that at the end of this particular piece, once she's unloaded all of that baggage bullshit with all the rest, she turns around and says that one little line. Can you just walk the dog? I mean, please. And I mean, what she's actually saying, I and think, I think explicitly, she says, can you help me out? And I yeah. think that's... in. And out of all of these, it's the most healthy, this the most mentally healthy character because all of these characters are asking that. All of these characters are either explicitly or implicitly saying, hey, you know, help me out with this 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 bag of nonsense that I'm bringing you or whatever is inside of it. And this character is not only drawing boundaries, is it explicitly saying, here's what I need. Here's what I'm dealing with. Here is something that I believe you are capable of helping me with. Can you do this? this and that will help me. It's like the conspiracy theories are the uh, emotional labor version of the man flu in this monologue. Like, like <laughs> this, is, this is his his wimpy excuse for not being able to help because he has all these emotional issues. He's trying to figure this stuff out. It's like, well, no, I'm already doing this much work. Now I have to navigate what you're doing and you're not helping me. So here's a leash. Go walk the dot. Like, it, it's very, very much. And, and Scott um, purposely chose a, a female voice uh, for the monologue and that's important too and i think you know recognize that's probably something that happens more frequently oh. to women than to men absolutely but we do have to think about what um uh, scott actually said about this particular piece all right well here's what scott said he says at first i was pissed and i'm gonna try not to take that personally as uh <laughs> as the person who sent him uh, the piece to be inspired by. And he says, I never heard the JFK Jr. isn't dead conspiracy, but the past decade of elections, digital misinformation, and QAnon have given me a rage response to all mention of conspiracy theories. Suffice to say, I already had an emotional investment in the topic, started ranting at an imaginary person who was insisting that global warming, vaccines, feminism, equal representation, and wearing a mask all made me a sheep. Then after several breaths, I focused on who the pipe person might be. Why would they say all this? And why would I bother engaging with them? Then I flushed that person out a bit to closer resemble people in my own life, whom I love and disagree with. Then I thought of a scenario whereby an uninterrupted monologue would take place in a conversation with such a person, the rough idea of the play that this scene would come in the middle of. Um, uh, and finally, I cast myself as the person being yelled at, instant sympathy for a POV that I hate. And so with characters, relationships, and setting established, I gave them an objective, and I raised the stakes. Write faster than I can think, and then walk away, sleep, and return. Spend way too long agonizing over the edits. And that is how he created that piece. And I love his comment about the rough idea of the play that this scene would come in the middle of. Because you do get this sense of this tragedy where uh and this piece was written by or was read by melissa aid who does a fantastic job but you you get the sense of this piece where 
Melissa's character is the protagonist trying to push through this tragedy, trying to keep things together, trying to overcome these obstacles that have been placed in front of her. And just like uh, was previously discussed, the, the scene right before this is, is, is her saying, you know, why haven't you done this yet? Why haven't you done that yet? We have funeral arrangements. We have this. And then this other character probably is like, I got so much on my plate, you know? I, I, was, I got JFK Jr., okay? I'm looking into that. That's important. I got these mermaids thing. They're going to come up and take over the world. That's important. <laughs> you know? And so uh, it's, it's interesting to, to imagine there is so much that happens before the monologue begins that's kind of built into and baked into it. So I like that. Yeah, I, I think that's very important to, to remember. Um, and uh, sometimes I don't think we talk about it enough is that there's always a life before these uh, uh, songs start, before these monologues start of who these people are and how they exist before we actually get a chance to see that little tiny block of what's going on. And we, we, we forget to flesh out or forget quite often to start by thinking about who they were before all of this happens, the stuff that we see. Anyway, that should bring us up to the first of two pieces called Find Me Again. This first one is a song written by Timothy Sheldon. Dear girl and my baby boy I don't know what they've told you But it's not the whole story when you hear this, you'll both be 18 and I'll be a voice inside your dream. Now you say this is the first of two pieces named Find Me Again, which it is, but I find it so fascinating because they are so tonally different. Uh, and I, I actually love that they're named the same thing because they feel like they're these... Uh, distorted mirror images of each other in in tone and in content and in character like it's almost been turned inside out and you see this totally different reflection of something that almost bears a certain amount of resemblance to it but it has the same title and i love that for these two particularly uh myself as well and what i liked uh, as much as that was the fact that uh the character missing from the piece before shut up has his voice in find me again the person that is gone in Shut Up is the focus of Find Me Again, number one. That, 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 that figure of the dead husband gets his chance to speak over here. And I actually love the fact that that, that, that connection helped me understand a lot more about what was going on in this particular piece. Um, because the first time through it, I, I, I just sat there and I went, yeah, this is really nice. It's, you know, that, that, that was everything that came up. And it was just like, well, I, I, I just, I guess I just couldn't latch on to what Timothy was saying. And then all of a sudden I did, my brain <laughs> deciphered one of the lines and actually heard it properly and actually heard what he was saying. And, it was the line, my babies, I was never just a brain. I'm, I'm, only, I'm not just the construct that you're having in your head. I was actually a whole human being at one point in time. And I think that's how it came through to me. 
Yeah, and I, I think it's, a, I, I find that to be not, not just a powerful line, but a haunting line. I, that line gives me shivers, to be honest, because of the context of the piece, because coming after Scott's piece with the death that is highly implied to be a suicide, potentially, because of the entire concept of mental illness running through all of these pieces that we talk about, to have this character say that is this this idea of we are more than what holds us back. We are more than our, I don't want to say the word flaws, but we are more than the, the things that we have to overcome, that we exist above that. And that this character is saying that because I wasn't just a brain as if the brain was what was holding him back and i it gives me shivers i i it's a stunning line no i i thought the whole thing had a a a, a shiveriness at the same time it was lovely to listen to and it was lovely to it, it's 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 that dichotomy of having very hard subject matter and very hard thoughts going on at the time that you're listening to a song that comes across as lovely and sparkling and and, and has this ability to to cheer you up at the same time that it tears apart your soul. You know, it's, we, we've talked about this a number of times where the, the I mean, especially with, um, Graydon James, um, Graydon, uh, and he turned around and he said, that's what he likes to play with. The concept of having light, bouncy music with very, very heavy, uh, meanings with it, very heavy subject matter. And I think, Timothy has has grabbed a hold of that and done a very good good job. I, I I wrote down in here that I love the use of the father, especially explaining his absence from the last piece. But the the other thing that that struck me in this one is that he repeated the same line a couple of times, and that line was "Nothing ever ends when nothing ever starts." Now, in, in my own interpretation, again, it, it's like. If he is talking from the point of view of the father in the last piece, the person that is no longer there, is he try, is he saying that you can't diminish and let go of me because if you don't listen and start listening, or sorry, if you don't start feeling? Well, I'm really interested actually in this, in that line in particular that you're talking about, because I think that there's like an underlying edge of denial there too, right? Um, in saying like nothing ever, it, it, nothing ever can you repeat the line word for word sure uh, nothing ever ends when nothing ever starts she so you don't have to fully you don't have to fully absorb something if it doesn't begin if you, if you live in denial of the con of, of the concept of what's actually happening you don't have to actually deal with the emotional burden and the the pain that might ensue if you really digest it in full um, absolutely I, I think actually he's saying you don't have to have it at all if you don't let it yeah you don't uh, have to deal with this at all if you don't start yeah, and that is such <laughs> that denial, as as I'll call it, I just think is so prevalent, and is, especially in the terms that we're talking about, the way that everything has kind of, you know, this theme of pain has sown itself through all of these pieces thus far. Um, to then say you don't have to feel it if you don't want to, just 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 don't then is is um is just very heavy. I think that's very strong. 
this is a uh, you know maybe a bit lighter than uh, what we've been uh, uh, talking about, but structurally, uh, the thing that I find so interesting, especially about uh, Tim using uh, the point of view of the absent father character from the last piece, and then Scott usually actually using the second person recipient character from my piece is you almost get this like you know this ulysses tone of like each chapter is a totally different genre style of a different character in one story you know like it's like you know we followed this character in the form of a Randy Newman style, you know, parody song about JFK Jr. And now we're going to follow this character in a, you know, in an excerpt from the middle of a play where she is the lead. And then, and now we get this totally absent character in a first person perspective, you know, uh, folk song that we didn't even know we were going to follow this character. Now we get an entire an entire piece devoted to them where we get their perspective and it all fits together so well that I, I am kind of, it's amazing. Yeah. We're completing the picture of this outrageously crazy, uh, distorted family that's been run through internet memes and conspiracy theories and everything else. And we're trying to find a picture of, of some kind of unit that, that all comes from it. But to be fair, to be fair to this last piece, though, I know you 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 brought on the sadness of it, and maybe because of my own relationships with with this piece, which I'll talk about when we get to mine, I found it so achingly beautiful. Like the fact that this father loved his children so much that he wrote them this song before he passed, which is how I took it to be. That mm-hmm. this is a song to be listened to after I am gone, and I've written this song for you, and that love being there, and it felt like such a healthy relationship, and it felt like such a good. Like it just, it, everything about it felt so, despite this one track, like this was the tragedy that marked their lives was his passing, not other things. They felt like a really beautiful family, twins, all this stuff. And I just, the beauty of the song struck me. And in, though the song was sad, it gave me a sense of joy because of the love that was present. If that makes any sense. Um no, it is it is a beautiful song that is open to a lot of interpretation. You know, like the the recipient, the viewer is adding is yeah. part of is part of that process. They're adding, yeah, exactly. Um, so what Tim had to say. So Tim says the monologue that I received is being expressed from the point of view of a mother who has just lost her husband to what seems to be a suicide, or at least that is how I took it. And she is speaking to his brother, who is pissing her off with his conversation. Uh, rather than helping in a more practical way. And so he says, I immediately started thinking about it from the father's perspective and what kind of pain you would have to be in to end your life and leave your family behind. Being a father, I felt personally connected to this idea and thought it would be interesting to write something for the kids from the father's point of view that they would be able to listen to later on at a point in their lives when they are searching. The script made me think about how the quote, truth, unquote, about the father's state of mind when he passed may get lost in translation as the years go by, and the children would hear conversations from the periphery, which would lead them to draw conclusions about their father, which may or may not be true, and what they would hear would depend on the voices that would be speaking. So this is an attempt by the father to add his voice to the mix and hopefully help the children in some way. Yeah, they're they're going to get their their personal interpretations of what happened, the the their personal um, ideas about who this person was, and 
they're not going to get a, a full perspective that or sorry they're not going to get the perspective that he has of himself which is the thing they're they're going to lose and they're going to lose more and more and more of as they grow older i think that's a beautiful statement a beautiful statement which brings us to adam our friend adam bailey who wrote a piece called find me again so i started having these dreams it's night And it's winter because it's, well, northern Alberta, so it's always night and it's always winter. And I've flown up on a biplane, which lands in their desolate version of what I assume their downtown is instead of an airport. And even though I have their address, it's not how the streets work there. Because Fort Mac is more foreign to me than, well, Lima, Peru. And so I I wander around this desolate place filled with oil workers who are all taller than me and have beards. All right, so why don't I start then? So, like I was saying before, um, I loved the tonal dichotomy between the two pieces to take the same title, same content somewhat about this uh, estranged father, uh, this father who hasn't been there for their children's lives and who wished he had been there for his children's lives. And who wants to express to them the love that he had for them when they were born and the love that he carries forward uh, and has been denied that by the twists and turns of fate. Uh, and whereas the song, as Adam, you described, is a very you know beautiful song that just feels like very pure uh I'm just going to say the love described in it is a very pure, like healthy love. It's a true love. It's just a genuine, absolute love. Then uh, from my perspective, to take that uh, and put it in a monologue where you have a somewhat unhealthy relationship or a perspective projection of that love, let's say. That's the word I'm, I'm looking for is an, p- perhaps unhealthy projection of that love. And then to tell a story from that character's point of view as somewhat, like I said before, a distorted mirror. Um, I don't want to say too much more because I, I, I might get it wrong. And I know how bad that is. <laughs> I, I'm going to throw in my uh, a little bit of my own per, per, um, understanding of the piece because I think I looked at it a slightly different way. But I found that um, the father in this piece was just as lost as his image of the kids. He didn't know what ground he was standing on anymore. I mean, he he does want to be the father. He does want to be a part of these kids' lives, but he was denied that. It was taken away from him. He had no direct contact with them in, in, in any way. And he has especially within the dream sequence where he's wandering uh, and moving through a place that is foreign to him and the lostness that is projected through that is what he's projecting on his children. And that lostness becomes pervasive. And the only person that can, can straighten out that lostness is the person that basically says, don't do that. You're not allowed to do that. Because somebody told you you can't do that. And that 
lostness becomes pervasive within himself. The dream sequence I thought was um, was was my favorite part of the piece actually, and it's such an interesting part because this character's imagination of where their kids are is horrifying. It's this lonely desolate wasteland full of men with beards which is terrifying under it under the circumstances and uh uh and so the impression i got from that is that this the character's subconscious wants to rescue their kids from what they're going through this horrifying uh, uh toxic masculinity is one of the terms that they throw out there and i found that to be an ironic term because although uh, the character uh, is, is queer character and the character doesn't exhibit a lot of the characteristics of what we generally associate with toxic masculinity, the whole ethos of what this character is talking about is is very adjacent to <laughs> toxic masculinity. <laughs> and so that is, uh, it, it's this dark irony where the character just doesn't even realize how far they're they're kind of into, into that, that world, world he's they're, gone. they're going yeah, yeah that, well, that was 100 yeah. percent on purpose yeah. I, I they, thank you because yeah it's, it's he, he's he's definitely being toxic and engaging in toxic behaviors and just has no no he his queerness is a shield um from him seeing himself that way mm-hmm. and you you do get hints i think throughout the monologue that there are that's that something went wrong yeah but he he's not saying what yeah, that was there was definitely a period of time where he was allowed in these children's life and now he's not and there was a court case yeah because there's a right? there's like, a court order and you have to fill in the blanks but and you also need to have the the, the good sense and and the empathy i guess to be able to take everything he says one step forward when you say things like all i did was looked at their linkedin page and they freak out isn't that insane and it's like but there's probably a reason for that uh if someone's gonna freak out just because you looked at their linkedin page what is the background that led to that relationship and that is there's a there's something going on there yeah, absolutely and i made sure it was the um the because his his children are are um being raised by a lesbian couple who he was supposed to be in an open adoption with um, open adoption being like the key phrase. Uh, and it was the partner of color who was LinkedIn. He looked at, so I made very sure that it was that person who he was looking at and that there's an issue going on there in the relationship that has, that has tangled, tangled it up. So def- definitely something that I want. And I, all my work, I tend to leave like, clues for people to put together i'm not someone who likes i I tell the full story but you still have to find out where where things are i want it to make a self-contained piece as opposed to a a monologue in the middle of the story i wanted this to be the entirety of the piece that you were getting yeah but as as we all know every story is a mystery story so no i wouldn't say that i wouldn't say that to be honest but we we actually we had a similar conversation in uh episode two in the talk back and because uh, in that episode, uh, Barb Scheffler wrote a piece, and she writes murder mysteries, and her piece uh, had a murder in it. Uh, but one of the things that we talked about was how all of the uh, the beats and the little details in the piece were clues to a bigger picture. So she had written a piece this large, and she was showing you this much of it, but every single piece in there was 
allowing you to fill in the rest of this canvas. That's the way she writes, but that wasn't the way, that's not the way that everyone writes. And there was another piece in there where the writer, uh, David Healy, you know, he was writing in a comic tone and a lot of the stuff he was putting in there was actually red herrings. It was the opposite. It was meant to kind of like distract you from what he was actually going to talk to you about later. Um, and in this episode, I think it's interesting that we have some similar stuff where, Adam, I think your piece, it does absolutely do that. You get a very good idea of a very large backstory for these characters on a very large canvas. And you you project that out from a very small subset, from a very small monologue. Um, and if you compare that to Scott's piece, Scott's piece to me reads like, uh, you know, it comes across kind of like a primal scream and it reads, you know, like it's, it's, what's the artist with the dropping paint? Jackson Pollock. Jackson Pollock. Yeah. Like it's, it's art that is created through almost stream of consciousness. It is, it is a stream of consciousness creation that he's edited and he, he puts a lot of thought into, but that's the way that it comes across. And, uh, the, the, the first piece in this, uh, is also, I think, not so much clues as much as everything is a metaphor. Uh, the half person, half fish, Sam chalk piece is where every single piece does mean something else, but it's not giving you backstory. It's metaphor. It's metaphor. As she was saying, and we were discussing for the characters, you know, feelings for the characters, depression for the characters own growth and what they're, they want to go through. And I, I think those are three totally different ways to approach narrative. Yeah, and she and she's very into magical realism where, I mean, there's magic realism in mine in that there's a dream sequence, but it's a very different sort of, it's grounded in character in a different way. A lot of what I do is empathy-driven and character-driven. Um, the reason I went the direction that I took was because I am the product of an open adoption. And I'm a queer person who has had to like mourn their own infertility. And, and in the queer community, like we've, we've had an opportunity, um, me and my partner to maybe help a lesbian couple have a child and have had, had that conversation. Like, what if something went wrong? And that's happened too. And in my open adoption, when I was a child, um, it was done mostly for the sake of the grandparents so that my grandparents wouldn't lose out on me. My mom had me as a teenager. My biological dad went away. My mom got remarried to a minister. So open adoption, the grandparents were always involved. I had, I had six wonderful grandparents. Well, five wonderful grandparents and one, uh, I had, I had six wonderful parent, grandparents. And, and, and then when I was a teenager, after my grandparents on my paternal father's side died, um, we, we ended up seeing each other a couple of times. And then when I was in my final year of high school, he moved to my hometown to get to know me. Um, which was a very bizarre thing to have to like, like compute. And of course, as a queer person getting that song that I had before that, um, that other song, uh, I just didn't know how to deal with father issues in the way that that song was talking about. I'm like, I don't know what it's like to, to miss a father that I had this relationship with, but I do know what it's like to have a father that was never present. And I do know what it's like to have that father suddenly want to be present. And that's where that um, came from, but I was like, what if I was that person? So instead of, instead of dealing with it as in wanting to put it out there on someone else or in someone else's behaviors, I was like, and we're in this whole, um, culture. I think this is that thing what, uh, Jamie was talking about earlier. We're all 
in a point right now where we're all asking ourselves, what's our toxic behavior? What's our white privilege? How, how have we been racist? How have we been sexist? How have we been? So I was thinking about this thing that I went through. And I'm like, well, it's not good enough to say, oh, well, this is how straight men are. And, and as a queer person, I was like, well, no, I have to think about how I engage in these behaviors. So I projected myself into the position of someone who might just show up in their kids' lives one day, because that's the question that he's asking himself. Like, do I fly to Saskatoon? Mm-hmm. He doesn't. He doesn't say it directly, but you know that that's what oh, he's, he's. Of course. Yeah, he's like, this is the last chance I have, where I know where they live, where I know who they are, where I can get in touch with them. Um, it's because and... he's sitting in an airport lounge. <laughs> you didn't add any airplanes in the background. No, I, I, I no, I, I, I didn't think we needed to be quite that explicit, but I mean, yeah. But, but it's just, it's just, it's just this thing, like, like what, what would that be like for, for me? And so I want it, I want it to really go in with that sense of empathy and with that sense of, of blindness to how someone else's life can be impacted by, by your absence and how you don't necessarily, that you don't necessarily just get to have permission to come back into someone's life. Even if, even if you're, the label is father, even if the label is blood family. Um, we were talking about it with relationships earlier, um, you know, like a boyfriend or girlfriend that wants to come back into your life. But sometimes it's like, it's a a dad, an aunt, a grandparent. And sometimes you've been gone long enough that you don't just have permission to show back up. And it's so weird when I heard that first prompt and it was all in that first prompt. I was like, what, what witchcraft do you, do you practice on this podcast? (laughs) Uh, That's what I'm kind of amazed at right now. Like, but I'm just, I'm stunned at how different this is from the original and yet this theme of permission and like not acquired permission is coming up yeah it's boundaries i mean all these pieces are about people pushing against and kind of breaching personal boundaries and interrelationship boundaries that explicitly or implicitly exist it's it's interesting i also just wanted to say that i think it's incredible adam that you were able to tie so much of your life into the piece that you created as well um I am so excited to go back and listen to this now. <laughs> I, this is my first time meeting you, and now I feel like this piece is 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 a, a projection and you know a, a, of your life. And I think that that's just so brave to to bring so much personal appeal into it. And I'm not going to step on Adam's toes to say that a lot of his writing is based on his own personal life. And he does a very good job of of taking uh, events and structures from his own life and using them to project bigger stories about other things, using himself as a basic. And I, I think that's absolutely wonderful. Well, so- something that that happened to me listening to this one, and I love the actor that you had too, it was, was I realized for the first time, because I was always like, what's the common theme that's going throughout my work? Because everyone's like, you have to know what the common theme in your work is. And I'm like, I don't. <laughs> I really, really do. And, and, and it struck me that in, in, in my piece, this person is struggling with gender scripts. And I'm like, all of my characters are struggling with gender scripts, almost like... If not explicitly, like to the audience, it's explicit. If they don't know it, everyone else around them does. And I'm just like, this is another person where they're like, I'm a father, but I'm queer, but I didn't raise the kids, but the, we were going to raise the kids queer. But now that like, like gender is this giant um, aspect that ends up being in, in all of the pieces that I've written. And I didn't really clue into that until I heard someone else reading my lines. And I was like, oh, huh, <laughs> that, that's really, that's really interesting. 
Well, I'd like to thank you both for coming this uh, this evening. I'd like to thank Adam Bailey. I'd like to thank Kirsten Johnson, Aris, uh, for dropping in this evening. I'd like to thank my uh, co-host and friend and co-producer, Sean Erker. Uh, my name is Jamie Johnson, and I'll uh, pass off the particulars to Mr. Sean, please. Okay, well, the uh, particulars at the end here are just to say that if you would like to contact us, we uh, are at streamsandvariationspodcast at gmail.com. Our website contains uh, all of the episodes as well as biographical information about the artists and uh, the props for this episode, including uh, the one that we read earlier done by Jamie and given to Kirsten. Um, If you want to befriend us on the social media, we are... uh, at Variations Pod on uh, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And the next episode, episode seven, is coming out May the 3rd. So stay tuned for that. Otherwise, uh, 